John chapter 13. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 17. You can find that on page 900 in the Pew Bible. John 13, 12 through 17. We are back to one of the best, most beautiful scenes in the whole of the Bible. We're back to love. 1989, my favorite band growing up, U2, released a song featuring the great B.B. King called When Love Comes to Town, and the opening line was, I was a sailor, I was lost at sea, I was under the waves before love rescued me. The song then goes on to recount uh, a sinful past, but then the chorus keeps breaking in in B.B. King's great, soulful, bluesful voice, and the line that's repeated is, but I did what I did before love came to town. Before love came to town. The point seems to be that love changes things. Love transforms the loved. He was this, love came to town, and then he was this. And so when love comes to town, everything changes. You could say that the Gospel of John is the record of when love came to town. John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In a sense, the Word came to town. Christ who is life and light. Christ who is God. God, 1 John 4.8, who is love. Thus this Christ is love. So in Christ, capital L, love, the person has literally Come, And we just saw in the first part of chapter 13 one of the clearest demonstrations and displays of His love. As the God of all glory, the all-knowing, all-sovereign One, Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, is also the all-humble, all-loving One. As He, the highest, gets the lowest, puts off His clothes, puts on the clothes of a servant, and washes the stinking feet of the stubborn disciples, serving them and signifying to them their utter dependence upon Him for grace and mercy to cleanse and forgive and redeem them. So Jesus has revealed Himself in this powerful and provocative sign. And now He is going to instruct His disciples with this powerful and provocative sign. He has illustrated His point. Well, now He's going to apply his point. This is what this means for you. This is what you are to do. Who he is and what he does determines and defines who we are and what we are to do. As he says in verse 15, I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. So he is first and foremost our savior, but he also is very much our example. And here he is saying, Here's what love looks like. Here's what love does. Here's how you must love one another. And let's be honest, we don't really love this. We like love in theory. I think we sometimes loathe it in practice. We like the abstract idea of love. We don't so much love the practical requirements and duty of love, especially when it looks like this. We love to post about loving all the abstract people of the world, but we don't love to actually love the real, actual, difficult people right around us. We're not good at this. 
I am not very good at this. I, if I'm honest, I loathe preaching about love because I'm painfully aware of how unloving I still often am. As a sinner, just like you, I always preach better than I practice, which is concerning because the preaching is not all that good sometimes, right? Um, but the point is, what I mean is that it's far easier for me to stand here in this pulpit and preach what God's Word clearly says than it is for me to step outside of this pulpit and then do and live the very things that I have just preached. So I hope that we can see that we are all in this together. We are co-strugglers in our uh, lack of love. We know these things, but do we do these things? 4 verse 17, which is mainly what we're going to look at this morning, it is in the doing that we find the blessing. Or as the King James puts it, happy are you if you do these things. And isn't that what we all want? We all want to be happy. That is what we are all pursuing in all that we do. We never do anything except that which we think will work toward our happiness in some way. The problem is we have listened to the world and to Satan and to sin, and we have convinced ourselves to turn toward ourselves, to look within ourselves, to pursue the desires of our hearts and be ourselves and express ourselves and actualize ourselves, and it is in, it's then that we will find happiness. And yet, we're all miserable. Right? The, the more we look within, the more we pursue self, the more misery we find. The great secret of being miserable is to look only and entirely to self and to live only and entirely to self. And the great secret to being happy is to look only and entirely to another and to live only and entirely to another. And that is what Christ is showing us here. You probably know that. The question is, do you do that? For that is where he says that we find blessing. Jesus is giving us an example. He is, he is telling us what to do based upon what he has done. This is discipleship 101. Going back to 1226, a disciple is fundamentally a follower. A disciple listens to what Jesus says and then does what Jesus does. He loves Jesus and then becomes like Jesus. And so when Jesus tells us here that he's giving us an example and to do what he has done, he is telling us about discipleship. He's telling us about the Christian life. This is what it looks like. Our focus is going to be on verse 17, and I've taken our simple outline from the three key words of this key verse. Nothing brilliant this morning. I want to try to keep it simple. I want us to consider this passage this morning and consider discipleship under the headings of knowing, doing, and blessing of knowing and doing and blessing. It's these three together that we're going to see Jesus use to define and explain the Christian life this morning. We've talked a lot about the paradox of living through dying. Let's focus this morning on the paradox of blessing through serving. You want to be blessed. I know that you do. You want to be happy. I know that you do. Well, hear and heed God's word. Let's be a hearer and a doer of this word this morning. Let me read it for you. This is the most important part. John chapter 13. I want to read again starting in verse 1 because we just we need to be confronted again with Christ and what he does here. So we'll start in verse 1 to set the stage and get his example in our mind and then we'll stop what looks like in the middle of a paragraph. It's not really. We'll stop at verse 17 and focus primarily on it. 
Pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you today. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. If you would, let's stop. Let's pray. Let's ask for God's help in this time. Father, we thank you. Already you have been very gracious and generous to us. You have given us this day. You have given us life. You have given us beautiful weather and a creation that screams your, your power and your presence and your goodness. Father, you have given us your word and, and teaching from that word uh, this morning that reminds us of the beauty of, of knowing you and of being known by you. You have given us the great privilege of congregational worship and, and being well led in proclaiming your praises and song. You have given us prayers. You have given us your word. Father, you are so generous and kind and good. Father, you have loved us so well today. And in what we just read, Father, we see how you have so perfectly and fully loved us in Jesus Christ. Father, our love so frequently does not correspond with or match in any way the great love we have experienced in Christ. Father, use this word to challenge us. Father, use it to encourage us. Uh, use it to make us a more loving people because uh, we are growing in our understanding and in our knowledge of, of your great love for us in Christ. Father, I can't do this. We cannot do this for ourselves. We believe that your spirit works through the means of your living and active word. And so we ask now that you would show us Jesus. You would help us to love him and love one another. Father, use this time for your glory and our good. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Point number one. Knowing, the last verse we just read, verse 17. 
if you know these things. What things? What do you need to know? Well, back to verse 12. Context. Jesus has just washed the disciples' feet, as we have read. Further context, we read it all the way back in verse 1. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's what these whole five chapters are all about. They are an intimate and personal revelation of God's precious, particular love for his people. Jesus is going to teach lots about love. But first he shows them, he illustrates, and then he instructs. And that's what the foot washing was all about. And so we pick up in verse 12. Now when he had washed their feet, Jesus put on his outer garments, resumed his place, and said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? So you look at verse 12, and you look at verse 17, and you note that our passage is bracketed with knowing. We begin with understanding, and we end with knowing. And it's actually that understanding in verse 12 that is the most common Greek word for know. Gnosko is is, is to know. The New American Standard of verse 12 says, Do you know what I have done for you? And then verse 17 is a different word. It's this word oida, which generally means also to know. We could get lost in the weeds and try to parse out differences between uh, these words. uh, But it seems that they're used largely interchangeably. At the very end of the book, Jesus is graciously and patiently forgiving and restoring Peter. And Peter will cry out in chapter 21, verse 17, Lord, you know, oida, everything. You know, gnosko, that I love you. He uses both, and it seems that they largely mean the same thing. And so the point is that we have no in 12 and no in 17. Jesus says, do you know what I have done? And if you know these things. Discipleship is knowing. Following is first knowing. Now, I know that you know that I think that knowing is important. But let me briefly show you how important God thinks that knowing is. Because it would be hard to overemphasize how strongly the Bible emphasizes knowing. It puts a tremendous emphasis on thinking. We are minds made by the mind. We are thinking things who serve a thinking God, a speaking God, a God who reveals himself through words. Words work through our minds as we hear and then think and then know. And it is knowing that is living. Flip over to chapter 17, just a few pages to your right. This is one of the first things that Jesus says in his last prayer. John 17, 3. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So eternal life, no eternal life without knowing. No living without knowing. Skip down 14 verses. Jesus will pray in 1717, sanctify them in the truth. Can't wait to get to this verse. Your word is truth. Truth is that which is known. It's found in God's word. It is the means through which God sanctifies us, shapes us, and transforms us, makes us holy. And holy is happy. So there's no sanctifying without knowing. Look at the end of the prayer. Look at verse 26 of chapter 17. 
God, this is Jesus, the Son, speaking to the Father. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So Jesus makes known God. He speaks and teaches truth about God that this teaching, this truth, uh, would be the means of God's own love being in us and of Christ himself being in us. So there's no loving or being loved without knowing. So frequently in Scripture, all these things that we tend to divide, there's the knowing and there's the loving, and you're either a knowing person or a loving person. Scripture keeps them together. They go together. And then Paul picks up on this knowing and thinking theme and just runs with it. Uh, Philippians 4.8. You don't have to turn to all these. I'll read them. Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Colossians 3.2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Romans 12.2 is the big one. Do not be conformed to this world. All right, how? But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And how is a mind renewed? It is only by words. And grace-based, spirit-empowered thinking on those words that reveal to us uh, the God of those words. One more just for fun. This one's just a bonus for you. Go look at this one and think about it. I love this verse. 2 Timothy 2, 7. Paul is writing, Paul, old Paul writing to young Timothy, uh, his last letter. And Paul says this to Timothy. He says, think over what I say. Now catch this next word. He says, think over what I say for... The Lord will give you understanding in everything. Do you catch what Paul is saying there? He says, Timothy, think over all of this, all this teaching and truth that I have just given you. Think over it for the Lord will give you understanding. That for implying that it's the very thinking that will be the means through which the Lord gives the understanding. So he says, think through this. And the Lord will work through this spirit-inspired teaching combined with your spirit-empowered thinking and the result will be understanding the things of God. God works through our thinking. And so yeah, those are just a couple of the verses. There's so many more. But the point is, think. Your mind matters. Mind that mind. Think about your thinking. Pay attention to your attention. We've been talking a lot about attention lately. This is what we're really talking about. I tricked you. I was actually talking about thinking and just using a different word. Uh, intentionally paying attention to what you are paying attention to. And then seek to intentionally think on the things of God, which are actually the things of life. And as we saw this morning in Sunday school, the things of delight. I'm trying to convince and compel you and myself to stop paying so much attention to and stop thinking so much about that which ultimately doesn't matter at all and to pay a little more attention to and think about a little bit more that which matters eternally, which is ultimately God himself as revealed in Christ. 
We, we, just, we just tend to have such small and so few thoughts of God. But that's in part because we so little attend to his word and his revelation of himself. For when we start to do that by his grace, when we pay attention to and think of the God of this word, we cannot help but start to see that he is so much bigger and so much better than we thought. He is not like us. He is not what we thought. He is glorious and good. He is light and life. Remember the the good line from the bad show last week. You think you know, but you have no idea. There's nothing more important than knowing this, than knowing him, and doing so truly and biblically and savingly. Knowing. So now go back to John 13. Jesus says, do you know what I have done if you know these things? So so what are the specific things here that he is referencing when he says, if you know these things? Well, pick back up in verse 13. Look at verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. I love that. I just love how just unapologetically... What would be arrogant to us? Jesus is just confident. You're right, I am. These are the things that you need to know. The identity of this Jesus who makes such bold claims is what you need to know. You call me Lord. You're right. I am Lord. And if we had time, we could review all seven of his I am identity claims. Uh, The next one will suffice coming up in the next chapter, 14 verse 6. I am the way. And the truth. And the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's quite a claim. People don't say stuff like that. It's either true or it's insanity. And if it's true, what Jesus is saying is that's what you need to know. You need to know who this man who claims to be God, who claims to be life, who claims that knowing him is eternal life, all you need to know is him. He is the these things that you need to know. He is Lord and life. But yeah, there's even more, of course. We could have never expected, we could have never invented such a person as this. He is teacher and Lord. And as we considered last week from verse 3, he's omniscient, he's sovereign, all-knowing with all authority, power, control, glory. But, verse 14. Look at verse 14. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet. Stop. That's the these things that you need to know. The Lord has washed the feet of the servants. The king has washed the feet of his enemies. The holy has washed the feet of sinners. The highest has gotten the lowest. And we know that as low and as gross as washing stinking, filthy feet is, it's nothing compared to what it represents. For this wasn't about a physical washing at all, but a spiritual washing. Christ is not dealing with dirt. He is dealing with sin, the wages of which is death. Thus, for Christ to deal with sin is for Christ to deal with death. And that is why he has come to die. That is how he has loved his own to the end. He died for them that they might live. This is the gospel. This is what you must know. 
and think and mind and, and meditate upon the good news of what God has done to save sinners like you and me. Ephesians 2, 1, you were dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And our culture is obsessed with an identity in a way that no culture has ever been obsessed before. Well, Ephesians 2, 1, there it is. There's the identity of everyone who has ever existed, ever, according to God's word. Dead in trespasses and sins. Verse 3, we were by nature. Here's who we were. By nature, children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. Again, according to God's word, that's the identity of everyone who has ever lived. That's the identity of everyone born into this world. Right? Do other identity markers really matter in light of this? What is anything else next to dead? What is anything else next to a child of wrath? But, you know what's next. You know the next two words, as Anthony pointed out in Sunday school last week, two of the best words in Scripture. But God, here's man, here's death, here's sin, here's wrath. But God, but grace. But God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And that what is a who. It is Jesus Christ who lived and died and rose again for us because of our sin. And in this is love, 1 John 4, 10. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you know what I have done for you? Jesus says. See, discipleship starts here. The Christian life starts here. Life itself starts here because we were dead and this is the only means to life. Everything starts with the Christ who is life, who gave up that life that we might live. That's what he's showing us in the foot washing. That's what he's asking us if we know. Do you know this? There's nothing more important to know. So everything starts here. Give yourself your time and your attention, your energy and your passion to knowing the one who claims to be life and to have loved you to the point of dying for you and experiencing an eternity of suffering for you. It starts with knowing and pursuing him and that knowledge of him. Point number two, but it doesn't end there. For true knowing always demonstrates itself in doing. Back to verse 17 again. If you know these things, point one, blessed, hold on, point three, blessed are you if you do them. That's point number two. The implication seems to be that uh, you are not blessed, uh, you are not happy if you do not do them. And, and what? Again, do what? Well, back up to verse 14. We didn't finish reading verse 14. Look at it. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, application, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now, again, what does that mean? The time for me to, to lay aside my outer garments, grab a towel, tie it around my waist, maybe dump out the coffee thing back here, fill it with water, come around and, and get to washing some feet, right? Who, who wants to go first? Right. Oh, of, of course not. 
that, that's not what it means. And also, listen, that would actually be far easier. As little as I like feet, it would be far easier to rotely and routinely roll through this room and wash every one of your smelly feet than it would be to do what Jesus is actually calling us to do here. Which is what? Well, ultimately, it's to die. That's ultimately what he's calling us to do here. It's, it's to die. This is a sign. We just talked about it. The point was not the foot washing. The point was what the foot washing was pointing to. The foot washing was the sign and symbol of the soul washing that Christ was about to do for us through his blood and death. And so the point is not that he is washing feet. The point is that he loved his own to the end and he loved them by serving them and he served them by saving them and he saved them by dying for them. The doing here is loving and serving. Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the serving is a die. Look at verse 15. <clears throat> for I have given you an example. Stop. So again, we've just seen it. The example must then be loving by serving. Serving self-sacrificially. Serving at great cost to self. Loving by serving by dying. I have given you an example, rest of verse 15, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Look at verse 16. Jesus is driving his point home. Remember, they didn't have italics. They didn't have bold. They couldn't underline things. Here's one of the ways we're getting emphasis. Jesus opens up what he's about to say with this, his statement of great solemnity and seriousness. Truly, truly. Amen, amen. Listen up. Pay attention to this. This is of utmost importance. A servant, it's slave. The word is slave. A slave is not greater than his master. Stop there. Now, again, I know my Greek isn't that great. I know that translators of your Bibles are much smarter than me. I, I, I fully understand that. But sometimes they do stuff that I just don't understand. Again, it's probably because I'm not that smart. But look at this, because I think it's neat, and the English obscures it. We see there, a slave is not greater than his master. That word master there in the Greek is the word kurios. It's the same as the word in verse 14. If I then, your Lord, your kurios, have washed your feet. Same word. I wish they would just translate it the same way. Uh, Jesus is here further emphasizing the insanity and the beauty of what it is that he is doing. In verse 14, he is the Lord taking on the role of servant. In verse 17, he is the Lord commanding his servants, whom he has just served, to know and then do what he himself as Lord has done for them. But it is, it is he who is the greater one, serving we who are the lesser ones. And it's the knowledge of that. It's the knowledge of him as Lord doing what he's doing. That by the grace of God motivates us and compels us, the lesser ones, to then go and imperfectly do likewise and serve one another as he has so perfectly served us. Discipleship is knowing and then it is doing. It is hearing the word and command of the Lord and then obeying the word and the command 
of the Lord. And listen, Jesus is just very clear about this. Though many are confused about this. I'm not that attuned to the evangelical reformed world. I, I'm just, I don't, I just really don't care about anything else out there anymore. I can barely keep things together in here. So I'm just not paying attention to much of the outside world. But the little bit that I do pay attention to, there's this weird resurgence of kind of growing antinomianism in the reformed world that kind of says any sort of saying you need to do this or obey or imperative is, is legalism. And I just don't get that. I don't get where that's coming from. That's very uh, contrary to what Jesus does. There's, there's nothing new under the sun. But this isn't all that complicated. Okay, well, let's be clear. We know that we are not saved in any way by our doing. We know that the gospel is all about the grace of God freely given us in Christ, received only and entirely by faith. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, 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 period. But the point that I am at pains to make, because I think Christ makes it, is that God's grace is so good. And that the Christ that we are united to by that grace through faith is so beautiful and glorious and all-encompassing that a true encounter with Him, a true sight of Him, and knowledge of His love for us transforms us. And it is this that results in the doing. Okay, so we're not doing to earn in any way. Christ has earned all and freely given all. And then when we meet him and encounter his grace, it's, oh, oh, this is so good. I want to be like him. And so again, what we tend to divorce, Christ does not divorce. So we frequently find Jesus saying things like Luke 6.46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? You can't be Lord if you're not doing what the Lord says to do. Matthew 7, 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Don't be the fool. According to Jesus, the fool is the one who is sitting in this room and hearing Jesus' words and not doing them. Just in the Gospel of John, we have 831. He's just said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. We just considered 12 47, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. And in the very next chapter, Jesus is going to go to great lengths to make this clear. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandment. And we try to like separate these. No, 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 we have law over here, and we have love, and these are different things. We have relationship, and we have rules, we have gospel. And no, Jesus holds them all together. If you love me, you will keep my commandment. This, this is what happens. This is what follows from my love for you and your love for me. It's, oh, I see now that he's good, and I want to listen to him, and I want to do what he says. If you love me, you will keep my commandment. This is just what God's grace does in us. This is the natural outflow of Christ, our servant, Savior, and example, Savior. I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. It's, just, it's, it's so simple. Again, in, in theory, practice a lot more difficult. But in, in theory, it's just simple and clear. Disciples do what the servant Savior does. Jesus has now clearly revealed himself 
as the humble, self-sacrificing, loving, serving Lord. And so to follow that Lord is going to, to some degree, look like humble, self-sacrificing, loving service. This is the doing that we are called to do. You ought to wash one another's feet. Church, Woodside, how are we doing at washing one another's feet? How are we doing at doing just as Christ has done to us? I proposed last week that maybe Paul was thinking of Jesus washing the disciples' feet when he penned Philippians 2. I flip there again if you want. Philippians 2, page 980, because Paul also applies that specifically to, to the church, to us. Philippians 2, page 980. Yeah, I, I know you know these verses. Let me encourage you to really pay attention to them. And to consider what this calls you to and what this would really look like. Right? What if we lived like this? What if we related to one another on this basis? You know, write these down and go home and think about these. Philippians 2, 3. We'll just look at 3 and 4. Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing. Say it again. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's precisely the doing that Jesus is commanding us to do in John 13. Now, I wish we could get into those words a little bit more, that selfish ambition and conceit. Because I think we're all tempted to assume we don't have a whole lot of problem with selfish ambition and conceit. We do. You do. I do. The NASB translate the first word simply as selfishness. And I was looking it up, Greek dictionaries. The first definition one Greek dictionary gives this word is the seeking of followers. That's hilarious. For that's entirely what social media is for. It's the seeking of followers. And the seeking of affirmation and glory and significance through those followers. Jesus is calling us here to humility and seeking not people to follow us, but seeking people to serve. But we live in a culture that is constantly compelling us to promote ourselves and advertise ourselves and to put ourselves out there, to display ourselves and draw attention to ourselves and seek likes and followers that only serve to affirm ourselves. And listen, it's just, it's deadly. It could not be more contrary to the gospel and the fruit of the Spirit, and what Christ is calling us to here. I read a great article last week. It's one of the best titles of an article for a while I've seen, so it's on my brain, so you're stuck with it. But the title was, Social Media is Brain Poison. That was it. I love it. Crystal clear. I guarantee that your life would be better without it. And I honestly believe that. My children, I guess, will be free, ladies, to do what you want when you no longer live under my roof. But as long as they live under my roof, they will not have social media. And I expect you to hold me to that. I expect Pastor Mike to come and call me out if I ever go back on that. Why would I want to feed my children brain poison? Why would you continue to feed yourself with brain poison? Is it serving in any way your own humility and your calling to seek and serve the good of others? 
Sometimes you just stuck with what I'm, I finished. I finally finished reading the Attention Merchants book on Friday as I'm working on this sermon, and so it gets put into the, the sermon. Uh, but it says the, the basic idea I said a few weeks ago was what you pay attention to determines your life. And so he's tracking from first screen movies to second screen uh, to TV to third screen to computer to fourth screen to uh, your smartphone, you know, that, that mirror of narcissus that you have um, in your pocket. And towards the end, he's talking about social media, and he brilliantly points out that most of us aren't going to become social media celebrities. And so he writes, for most of us, the effort of posting and producing content is an end in itself, and the ultimate audience is the very subject of the camera's interest, the self. And then he goes on to say that the logical endpoint of all of this is the self as the object of worship. This guy's not a Christian. He gets it. It's very insightful. Consider it. Paul says in our text, do nothing from selfishness or self-regard. And yet we're, we're so frequently giving ourselves to so much of which is demanding and affirming and promoting selfishness, self-regard. Pay attention to yourself. And the King James translates the next word there in Philippians 2 as vain glory. I love that. It's literally the word for glory and the word for emptiness shoved together. Empty glory. No doing anything from selfishness and a desire for self-glory because all of it is empty glory. Vanity of vanities. Instead, Paul says, humility, right thinking of ourselves, thinking of ourselves less. And church, for me, it has started with, and it has to start with, thinking about how much we think about ourselves. You just, just start there. That's what I'm asking you to attend to. Pay attention to how much attention you pay to yourselves. Right? I'm fighting the temptation right now to be considering this sermon and determining it in light of, hey, what are they thinking? What are they thinking about me? Are they going to praise me? Are they going to affirm me? Why does that one person look angry? Um, why is that one person asleep? Right? And I'm so con always concerned and thinking, like, and it, it's about me. It's just selfish pride and self-obsession. And so again, it starts with simply starting to attend to how much attention you pay to yourselves. And it starts with realizing how much of our motivation for so much of what we do is entirely self-focused, and glory of self-motivated. Look at Jesus. That's why we come to him and his word again and again and again. Look to this Jesus. Look at how entirely other-focused he is in John 13. A.W. Tozer writes that faith is the gaze of the soul upon a saving God. Again, I love better, more helpful, fuller definitions of faith because we're like, oh yeah, I believe some stuff about Jesus. Yeah. Tozer says, faith is, is the gaze of the soul upon a saving God. And he goes on to write, faith is the least self-regarding of the virtues. It is by its very nature, scarcely conscious of its own existence, like the eye which sees everything in front of it and never sees itself. Faith is occupied with the object upon which it rests and pays no attention to itself at all. You know how good that sounds? I want to be so occupied with the object of my attention, so occupied with Christ, that I am more and more paying no attention to self. 
And it is when, by the grace of God, I am able to at least begin to pay a little bit less attention to myself that I am able to at least begin to pay a little more attention to others. This is how it starts. Attention. We need to pay better attention to one another. This is how we begin to love one another. We seek not only our own interests. We're great at that. We've got that covered. But when we see how much attention Christ has paid to us, how he has sought our interest, we begin then, by his grace, to desire and seek the interest of others. And that's the doing that we are called to do. That's the doing of discipleship. Again, how, how does that sound to you? I, I get, if it sounds a little bit like dying, then good, because it is. But as we've been seeing, 12, 24, and 25, dying is the way to living. And so this doing is the way to blessing. And so point number three, verse 17, one more time. This is key. Don't miss this key center word. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Do you believe that? All that we just talked about, not paying attention to yourself, not even thinking of yourself, not seeking your own interests, but every other's, other people, focused upon them. That the blessing comes to them. Dying to self, self-sacrificially, serving and seeking the good, not of yourself, but of others. And blessing is found in that way. Do you really believe that? We all want to be blessed. We want to be happy. Not surfacy, superficially happy, but truly, lastingly, completely happy. Satisfied. Content, at peace, at rest, and right with God. Blessed. That's what this is about. And, and Pastor Mike has been walking us through this for months in Matthew 5. We're just, we're too familiar with the Beatitudes. And we don't really believe the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit when we live as if it's blessed are the proud in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn when we live as if it's blessed are those who self-medicate. Blessed are the meek when we live as if it's blessed are the loud. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness when we live as if it's blessed are those who hunger and thirst for pleasure. Blessed are the merciful. We believe it's blessed are the powerful. Blessed are the pure in heart. We believe that it's blessed are the followers of heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. When we believe it's blessed are the self-makers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake when we live as if it's blessed are those who are praised for selfishness' sake. We just need to see how utterly different the way of Christ is. The way up is down. The way to life is death. The way to find yourself is to lose yourself. The way to blessing is serving. We just don't really quite believe that yet. We're so consumed with the world and convinced by the world as it tells us to pursue self and to follow the heart and to look within. I was reading another book that had a survey a few years back that found that 91% of adults in the United States agreed with the statement that the best way to find yourself is by looking within yourself. 91% of adults are wrong. <laughs> They're just entirely wrong. But this core foundational belief affects everything. It affects everything. Are you unhappy? Could this be part of it? 
I said at the beginning, the great secret to being miserable is to look only and entirely to self and to live only and entirely to self. And the great secret, according to Jesus here, to being blessed and happy is to look only and entirely to another, to live only and entirely to another. And so it's either misery through self or, or happy through serving. But I guess, is that really true? Does that really work? Why is that the way that it is? It's because of the first part of our passage. It's because of Jesus. It's because this is who our God is. This is what he is like. This is how he has created his world to work. Jesus is the only perfect person who has ever lived. The only one who would have been perfectly satisfied, always content, ever rejoicing. Look at how he lived. And look at what he did. He died for us. Hebrews 12, 2, for the joy that was set before him. This is the way that the world works because this is the way that he works. And as the blessed one, the one working that his joy, John 15, 11, might be in us and that our joy may be full, if that's who he is, then it makes perfect sense then that we would only find joy in the way that he, God himself, prescribes. Listen to him. That's what it means to be his disciple, to believe what he says and to do what he does. And he says, love one another. And guess what? He's going to pause to talk about Judas for a second, and then he's going to come back and say it again. We're going to have a whole other sermon about this. He must think that we need this. He says, love one another. And it's there that you will find blessing and joy as you love one another as I have loved you. And yet we keep looking within. We keep focusing on and asserting self. And we keep living for self. And it keeps not working. And we keep, man, what, what's going on here? I can't, I don't understand this. This is why we were made for more. We were made for blessing and joy. And as we were made to be other-oriented around Him, the God of life and light, we find ourselves as we look away from self and look to Him and live for Him and then look to those who are His and live to those who are His. So do you want to be happy? You do. Jesus says it's found only in knowing Him. All the other things that you're pursuing, the relationship change, the job change, the finances, the get out of this city, or the kind of whatever you think circumstantially that's going to fix it and make you happy. Jesus says, ultimately, joy and this satisfaction is found only in him. And so pursue him as if that was true. Pursue him with all that you have and all that you are, for he is worth your everything. And then get to work doing the doing through which comes the blessing. Find someone that you can begin to love and serve and seek their good. It, it, it's that simple. That's it. I, I stole from another pastor a while back the promise that you'll get, you'll get everything out of this church that you want to need. As imperfect as this church is and as I am, you'll find what you're looking for if you just do two things. If you show up consistently and if you seek to care for others. Show up consistently and seek to care for others. Be present and pursue others. What if we thought just a little bit less about ourselves 
and what we are or are not getting out of church and intentionally thought more about others and how we can help them and pursue them and seek their good. It doesn't need to be complicated, but it does need to be intentional. It can be as simple as getting to know someone better. We cannot know one another in this room for just one hour a week. Who are you pursuing? I know that you're seeking your own interests. We all are. We're good at that. Who else's interests are you intentionally pursuing? Who do you love? The Christian life is meant to be sacrifice and service, for that's what Christ's life was. And we say that we follow him, but sacrifice and service are meant to be blessing as we do what the Blessed One has done for us and as we do what the Blessed One has promised to bless. And again, kind of circling back to point two a little bit, do you know what part of that blessing includes? It includes being set free from self. And I want that to sound so good to you. That sounds so good to me. I am so tired of being so self-concerned and self-obsessed. What a word then. That blessing is found in doing what Christ has done for me. In attending to, he has attended to me and sought and pursued my good. He has perfectly set me free from the penalty of sin. He's progressively setting me free from the very power of sin. And one day he will set me free from even the presence of sin. I cannot wait for that day. What a blessing that is. And so why would I not then know and do what he so clearly tells me is the way to become even more set free from sin and self and find life and blessing in him? This is the end. This is the goal. This is the outcome of of all of this. It's not meant to be drudgery. The whole end of of Sunday school this morning was beautiful. The, The heart and soul of true religion, as Peter pointed out, and as the Psalms make so clear, it's delight is delight in the Lord. God is working for our good in all things. Jesus is telling us where blessing is to be found, and it is only found in knowing him and in doing what he has done for us. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So love, that's it. That's your application. Serve. Seek the good of others. Give what if you just like what if we started with like five minutes? What if you gave like five less minutes of this week? Five less minutes of your time and attention to self, and five more of those minutes uh, to uh, somebody else. Just start small. Uh-uh. Let's not waste this opportunity. Let's not do nothing in response to the text in which Christ specifically says that blessing comes through doing something. Right? I mean, I think we're really good. I'm really good about doing nothing. All right, 25 hours on this sermon. All right, now I can't even remember it. And let's move on. Let's not do nothing with the text that is specifically about blessing through doing something. What can you do differently this week after this service? Who can you reach out to that you normally wouldn't? Who's the one text that you could send? What's the one call that you could make? Who could you invite to dinner? Could you give up one of your seven free nights this week to invite someone over or to meet someone out for dinner and just to, to get to know them. Find someone and care for them. And in being a blessing to them, the beautiful paradox of this is that we find great blessing for ourselves. 
Do you know what Jesus has done for you? Church, he is so good. He's so good. And he promises you eternal good. Look to him. Love him. Live. And then by his grace, seek to live more and more like him as we seek to love one another more and more as he has loved us. If you would bow with me, let's, let's close this time with a word of prayer. Father, help us, please. Father, again, it's really easy to say right here. It's a lot harder to do just a few steps out of this pulpit. So we ask that you would help us to love one another. We ask that you would make us a loving people, a church so characterized by love for one another that the world sees that love and is, and is drawn to that love and is drawn to you through that love. And Father, it starts entirely with Christ. It starts entirely with seeing him for who he is and for who we were apart from him and then for what he has done to make us your own. So Father, help us to know the gospel. Help us to know your sovereign grace that seeks out and saves sinners, that gives us life. Help us to increasingly understand what it means to, to be in fellowship with you, in communion with you. Father, use those Psalms, which are so often foreign to our experience, to be the means uh, through which we more and more delight in you and love you and enjoy you. Father, for you are good, and you are working for our good, and you are out for our good, and you want to bless us, your people, and you have promised us life everlasting, and Father, that life begins now. And so I ask that you would give us great gladness in Jesus as we see him, and then give us great love and delight in being a family and being together and of loving one another and of learning to do that better. Father, please help us. Do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.